You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my two good friends, Dr. Stephen Kistler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kistler, who's a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. Before I say hello, you guys, I just realized I've been saying this for weeks now, and it almost sounds like I only have two friends. I just realized that. So I just said, like, I go, I'm with my, my two friends. I joined friends. with my two buddies. Two yeah, friends. Yeah, no, yeah. you're right. That's exactly yeah, it. Right. It sounds yeah. like these are my only right. friends. Yeah, you're uh, some of my two. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Two, two of my friends would be Yeah, the, two. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah. Hey, two friends. How's it hey, going? <laughs> it does raise the question. Too. What's our end here? Yeah. 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 <laughs> the population size. I don't know how big it is. Maybe it's three. Maybe it's three. Totally. So, uh, yeah, I do have a couple more than two. If I did have two, it made the selection really easy to figure out who was going to be on my podcast. So we're all together. So, um, so how, hey, Stephen, how's the weather in Boston? Is it warmer than 50 today? Hey, yeah, you know, it's, uh, we had a beautiful weekend here. I got out for a bike ride and um, it was just finally felt like spring. So I was pretty happy about that. Good, good, good. Are you seeing some uh, blossoming trees yet? Or are these still little? Yeah, we are. They're, they're like just starting to come in. It seems like spring was really late this year, but um, yeah, spring over here is really beautiful. So just a okay. lot of green. My, my thing is I love Boston. Like that's just like, if I, 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 okay. I, I really don't want to move anywhere. I mean, I love Colorado. It's great. Yep. I don't want to be here my whole life. I don't know where I want to go. My wife wants to live in Maui. It's a little expensive to live there and I feel a little landlocked. Uh, but you know, California is great. My sister lives down in San Diego. We know about that. I really would be there. It's the only place I could think of outside of one other place. And that'd be Boston. Like yeah, I, come to Boston. I would love to when I retire. All right. <laughs> so I'll see you in about 30 years or so. Uh, Mark, how you doing, buddy? Good, good. We're doing great. I, you know, I have uh, two pieces of news to share. Um, just congrats, uh, shout outs. My sister-in-law, uh, one of my sister-in-laws is getting uh, legally married today. They had unfortunately had to put their whole, they had a big wedding in, in India uh, planned right around this time. And, and because of all the craziness, you know, one of the big, talk about the, just the loss of like, communal celebration and stuff but uh big props to them and you know all the best of course it's super exciting even That's though it's awesome. you know changed and other big news life news uh my one of my other sister-in-laws just had a baby yesterday uh oh my gosh and so huge. it's the first uh first baby cousin for the for our, our little kids and just huge deal you know this like life stuff is still happening and and beautiful stuff so it's really good yeah, yeah. wait That's- my my six-year-old we were talking about you know we kind of building it up and you're going to be a cousin now and mom's going to be, you know, auntie Katie and dad's going to be uncle Mark. And she was like, Oh, I guess that's okay. I've just been so accustomed to calling your mom and dad. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> that is awesome. Like, oh man. Sweetie. The, yeah. the innocence of a child. I know. It's so yeah, great. Love it. Oh, so congrats, congrats is an order yes, to, to the to everyone, family. All of the, uh, yeah, man, um, we should have streamed their wedding right here on the podcast. We would get it would have been great. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah I wonder how they would like that. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure, <laughs> especially when it's called pandemic. It's like, that, yeah. is this is this like a, maybe, this is not a good first maybe step? Maybe we don't. Yeah, yeah. not the right podcast no. for the no. Yeah. Oh man, well, it's good to see you guys. Great news uh, with you. Thanks for sharing, Mark. Let's get uh, straight in. Is there anything else you think about? Nope, I think we're good. This weekend, I did a lot of garden work. Thought of you, Mark. So it was good. And we get some more planting. Uh, just, just thankful. It's beautiful here. Okay. So I think the first thing we want to talk about is in this news article, uh, I mentioned it to Steve and Mark. They both thought it'd be a good thing to chat about. And it's a great segue to the bigger issues kind of going on right now. Uh, if you have any pulse on social media, which if you don't, uh, that's awesome. Probably is a good idea. But if you are having a pulse on social media, pricing a lot of posts, 
uh, a lot of uh, polemical, kind of uh, difficult, heated subjects going on a lot about the reopening of the country in, in light of uh, COVID. But this article struck me about, yeah, I think it was yesterday. I saw this title, Scientists Conclude People Cannot Get Coronavirus Twice. And I'm like, man, that is worthy of a discussion topic. It just hit me. And I was telling them off the air, like, it hit me so intensely because I'm so used to talking to Mark and Steven that everything is always having these enormous caveats to everything, right? <laughs> yes, but. That's the other title of our show. Yes, but. <laughs> yes, but. So so when I saw this absolute statement, I'm like, man, this is news for pandemic. So I want to talk to you guys about this. So here it is. I think it's WHO brought the, brought this about. Uh, science clued people cannot get coronavirus twice. I know this was kind of been worried about for a while now. Like, is this, are people getting positive a second time around? We talked about that before. What do you guys think of this? Uh, Mark, do you want to chime in, chime in first yeah, here? Yeah, no, I think this is a good example of really good information and a really bad headline, um, unfortunately. <laughs> and, you know, unfortunately, this is a headline and it, we're talking about it. You read it, caught your attention. And that's, it did what it was meant to do, right? Sure. Um, but the conclusions, um, you know, anytime, as you said, I think it's great, you know, your sense, the sensitivity went up right away. It's like absolute statement. Hold on, you know, let's, sure. let's, let's talk about this. And I think, you know, the idea is in the article itself, as it, you know, unfolds is that there's been this question um, that people recover from COVID-19, they're testing positive again for the coronavirus. Um, what is the deal? Does this mean a, that the virus is mutating rapidly and we're actually getting, you know, multiple different kinds of viruses that are circulating through the population, or is it, you know, somehow acting strangely and we can get it multiple times and getting it once doesn't confer immunity. And what it seems to be is that actually these repeat positives that they were seeing in South Korea in particular were a result of a testing issue and not necessarily an error of the test so much as just a characteristic of the test, um, that it was picking up bits of viral DNA that were probably dead viruses, but the material is still floating around in the body and the, tenses, the test is so sensitive it could see it and test it positive again. And so that has um, that's important, uh, has Im immense implications for reopening, right? Because as we're talking about reopening, retesting, antibody testing, um, kind of a test of exposure or of you know recovery is really important in a lot of our plans that have been floated for how we get people back to work. Um, so very, you know, it's influential. It's important. It's good information uh, framed in a way that's significantly misleading. You know, and I think the the take home is like, sure, if you get coronavirus, you're probably not going to get it again. You probably have some baseline level of immunity. But anytime we say, you know, scientists conclude it, that you cannot. Um, you know, I think that that's, that introduces just this whole other frame, you know, this whole other like set of imp um, things that you might imply just by reading that headline that aren't actually borne out by the science in the article itself. That's Fair. helpful. Steven, Steve. any thoughts? Yeah. No, totally. That's exactly right. And I, I just want to bring up the fact, speaking of, you know, great research with a bad headline uh, last week, the big headline from the World Health Organization was that there is no evidence that SARS-CoV-2 leads to any immunity, <laughs> you know, and so, right. So there was, and, and, and there was only one step away from that to the, the other headline, which was that SARS-CoV-2 does not give you immunity. Right. But really what they were <laughs> yeah, saying so is just like, you know, we, we haven't done the measurements yet to know whether or not there's immunity. So we can't make a conclusion, but the headline, you know, is this big thing that, that suggests there's no immunity and now there's permanent immunity apparently. And so I think in all of these things, anytime there's one of these big headlines that drops, it's like, 
one has to look a little bit deeper into it. But, you know, one also has to have some sympathy for, you know, the, the, the poor all of us in the world who are trying to read these headlines and making sense of these things that are like really utterly contradictory. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. What are we supposed to do with this? So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just very difficult. But I think, yeah, definitely to echo what Mark said, um, my yeah, I, my good friends often I get really frustrated with me because of how much I hedge my statements as a statistician, because I will never, (laughs) never say that something will never happen in life or in anything. And they just want me to come down and say something (laughs) solid, you know, and, and, and I just won't. And so, so anytime you do hear that, you can, you can be pretty sure that it's probably not the result of, you know, that it's, it's an extrapolation from the science and not reflecting the science itself. That's great. And I think this gets into the big thing we want to go straight into uh, today. And just before I get into this, I need to do a commercial break because I did not mention this uh, just so we get going because before we get into the deep dive of uh, what this leads to is uh, just, again, uh, if you have a moment, uh, we would love ratings. Uh, it helps us a lot. So uh, st- step on into iTunes, give us a fair rating, whatever you think it deserves. Uh, Two-minute comment uh, would be hugely beneficial. And uh, as well, just to help us keep it, keep this going, uh, any kind of support would be great. Financial support, easy enough. Uh, Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. You can just give us a little $5 a month. If you just say, hey, man, I just need to get just one gift. I don't have that kind of resources. You can just uh, check the show notes out. I got a link to PayPal, Venmo. Uh, it's thank you for all those people who have supported, uh, which actually leads to this question. This comes from one of our supporters. They uh, were on our private Facebook page for those who uh, support because we're going to try to maybe throw every once in a while a live episode on Facebook. You can see us do uh, in live blunders of us stuttering and not knowing what we're talking about. So uh, that's like a small gift <laughs> that we can give back to you guys. The episodes actually four hours to tape. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. I just usually take a sabbatical week. Right. <laughs> every week. So not true. I know you're showered. Don't do anything. So yeah, no, not true at all. Uh, so we, if that'd be greatly appreciated, uh, if you can do that, you can check out the show notes for more information. But so this supporter uh, uh, posted this this morning, kind of just a plea. Uh, she sent an article. This isn't the only one. There are lots of articles like this. This one's a little more extensive uh, in the sense of it's longer. Uh, it is uh, coronavirus: the truth and lies uh, by Dr. David Williams, I believe. I didn't get a look at this whole thing. I skimmed it. Uh, who is a, who is an MD, MD, a doctor, and a bunch of lies and truths about coronavirus. So uh, I know you guys are getting this as well. We're getting a lot of this as well. Of, uh, as as the days and weeks continue, so does the heat. Like the heat is being turned up a level. Um, people are having differences of opinion and differences uh, of of how things ought to run and how we should how we should open. And that's great. I mean, uh, having a disagreement, there's nothing wrong with that, and is great. Uh, as long as we ground it in truth and ground it in the data and ground it into an overall the best way we can we can handle this. So uh, this this supporter gave us this article and it was a bunch of different kind of statements, which I think was a good one in the sense of it really did boil down the major issues that we were seeing going all over uh, Facebook and social media. And so I really want to spend a few moments chatting with Mark and Stephen about a few of these uh, and, and really kind of going under the hood of the the veracity of these claims and then I think I, we both agreed we want to kind of go, rise above this and just discuss maybe the bigger issues that are going on right now, uh, more on a philosophical level of like, I, you know, I want to, I, I want to just discuss this with Stephen and Mark. I'm hoping it'll be beneficial. I have a lot of things in my head right now that are frustrating me emotionally. Uh, and and, and uh, this might be a great time to just find some, some resources here. So uh, one of the things they've talked about here is a whole handful of things, the truth uh, and the and, and the lies about coronavirus, uh, and one of them I mentioned here, the truth uh, is that it's a medical disease that will lead to tragic deaths. Yes, it will. Uh, the lie we don't know much about coronavirus. 
uh, and that we actually do know a lot about coronavirus. Stephen, I want to start with this with you because I, I have a feeling like this is kind of like leading the jury a little bit. It's kind of like a, uh, we clearly do know things about the coronavirus because we talk about them. There's like, I, you know, I, I feel like there's a, it's a safe to say um, we don't know everything about the coronavirus. There's a lot of things we don't know. And we do know things, right, about the coronavirus. Yeah. So can you just discuss like, a little bit about, uh, about this claim that we really do know everything we need to know about the coronavirus? Yeah. So, I mean, while I was reading this article sort of up to this point, you know, I, I was actually sort of in agreement sort of up to that point, right? You know, it, it is, you know, (laughs) I think it's a little bit bold to call this a lie that we don't know much about coronavirus, you know, but because from some perspective, that's true. There's a lot that we don't know about it, but there's a lot that we do. And there's, we know enough about it again, to know that it can overwhelm medical care systems, that it's a very severe illness. And and we know enough about it to start making some projections about what we think might happen with it. But there are a lot of other things we don't know, like how long immunity lasts. And, you know, there are a lot of really key questions that, that we're still trying to figure out and that are really important for us to know, you know, how long we're going to be living with this thing. So I think, you know, the, the truth is that, like you said, we, we don't know everything. There's still things we want to know, but there's also an awful lot that we do know. So where it's yeah. it's just the difficulty of living in that that middle ground that I think yeah. is, you know, yeah, our mind, our mind really desperately wants to chomp down something that's absolute, and we want to try to create it. And the point, the point of this, this series and this episode is just really is that it's, 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 it's a desire, but we've got to ride that uncomfortable middle position. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, I'm just thinking of, yep, there's a lot of things we know, but like you said, Stephen, the important things that I learned from you two a lot, I mean, especially immunity and uh, the future of vaccines. These are real, legitimate unknowns that actually ha- that have consequences on public health and we got to discuss them. We don't know the real answer. And so we have to respond in a way that actually puts that in consideration and not just completely ignores the fact of those. The other one I wanted to mention, we've talked about this before that they've talked about this is uh, that the lie that COVID-19 is more infectious than influenza. And this whole thing was that no, absolutely not. It's no different than the flu. In fact, they are going to out to say that actually the flu is worse. And this is, and, and why this is cause for concern, right? Uh, for us to even, be doing this when the flu is worse. Stephen, again, you want to just... Yeah. So so this was the point where I thought that there was a typo in the article because <laughs> I was like, surely that has to mean truth and not lie. <laughs> right? um, <laughs> and so so I, I had to do a double take and read what they were saying. And then I was like, oh, okay. Right. So um, so the... <laughs> there, there are a couple of, you know, you, you can measure infectiousness in different ways, but like by almost every assessment that I'm aware of, COVID-19 is in fact more infectious than the flu. So the argument that the author is making here is that basically it takes less time or that for the same amount of time, flu infects more people than the coronavirus infects. But that's ignoring the fact that flu is constantly bubbling around in, in, mm-hmm. you know, in the world. And so that when the flu season hits, you're, you're seeding those infections with thousands and thousands of illnesses at the start. Whereas when the coronavirus outbreak was first detected, there was really just a handful. And it's taken a long time for that to ramp up. So that has nothing to do with the infectiousness. That just has to do with the fact that we're still... There, there was this wonderful statement from a, from a scientist, um, basically, who said that if this pandemic were a baseball game, we would be in the second inning right now. And, and so, and, you know, and that's, you know, sort of a qualitative judgment, but I think that's true. It's still early days and this epidemic is still very much spreading. So sure, flu can cause lots of infections in a short amount of time, but it wouldn't be able to do that 
if it were only starting with five people, you know, in the very beginning, like this one did. So we, we have really good ways of measuring infectiousness of illnesses. We have ways of quantifying that. And all of those are very, very consistent in the fact that this is more infectious on average than the flu. So Yeah. And this is great. I want to put this to Mark right now because this is a great time. You mentioned this off the, off the recording, but we mentioned this last was on Thursday. We talked about the difference between anecdotal and clinical evidence. And right, we mentioned these two. I want to bring this back. You mentioned this idea of the... the the scary part of relying on anecdotal evidence and, 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 and some of this vulnerabilities, would this be an example of maybe the vulnerabilities of anecdotal evidence? Yeah, I think absolutely. And I, I think um, precisely that, because if you go into the text of the, the article, it's, it is the anecdotes of, you know, what happens in a high school, what happens amongst a basketball team, what happens in the NBA with the flu, and then appealing to a sense of common sense, right, from extrapolating from this anecdote um, that a lot of this evidence in this particular segment is is derived from. Um, you know, I think it's Stephen, Stephen, you know, you, you has done great for himself, but he picked a field that uh, undoes its own anecdotal evidence. <laughs> you know, it's it's a total <laughs> bummer because yeah, if true. he succeeds, and I think you know, it's it's important to know that public health does this, right? That if public health works, then the stories of deaths from varicella, deaths from measles, deaths from polio, um, they aren't there. They're not part of our cultural narrative anymore. And, um, you know, the deaths from, from unsanitized water and things like that, that, that we, we lose so quickly, we lose a sense of kind of cultural memory about these things and in public health and in, you know, scenarios like this, it happens in real time in a matter of weeks. Um, you know, we have undone and we, you know, we talked about, we saw this coming. We said, if we do well with social distancing, we are going to say we overreacted, right? That that's, that that's how we know we did enough is when we say, you know, retrospective, the evidence is in and we overreacted. Um, that means, you know, that we did maybe enough or at least, you know, didn't. And, and the only, you know, it's, it's, it's almost as if saying like the only thing that would have justified these measures would have been a total apocalypse, you know, um, that, that like, and, and when you appeal to this anecdotal, you know, they're saying, well, I'm, I'm seeing our ICUs. They're not overwhelmed. You know, I'm seeing mm-hmm. these cases and they're not that sick. And, and that's not in a vacuum, you know, that, that yeah. even, and even in States where things were not, um, legally you know so so one of the comparisons that's being made is like let's take the anecdotes of a state in which the governor was very firm and put in you know uh, firm stay-at-home orders versus a state in which that didn't happen but the conduct of the citizens in those states is not necessarily an exact measure you know it, it, there's just so much complexity there that's getting smoothed over in these anecdotes um and so you know, I think it's it's so complicated. I'm I'm a big believer in the importance of of narrative and of story. Um, mm-hmm. A huge believer in the the way that an uh, you know an N of one or a in a single case uh, can be tremendously evocative and important. And that is an important type of knowledge. Um, but it's not the type of knowledge that we make big public health decisions upon. It's very important that we you know that we put put those different ways of knowing um, in kind of the proper proper places and allow them to inform our uh, decision-making in the proper ways. Yeah. I just, it's, it's just mind boggling to me. I, I, that it just, it just is, I, I think of, of the stories of my own life where either I have done this, which I've definitely been a part of this and I've other people where uh, something happens, right. And uh, maybe they take an herb or something and all of a sudden the next day they're perfectly cured. 
and they just they automatically tie those two to, together and, and just realize that it's in the end it's a much more complicated story and we got it we have to realize that everything's more complicated we look at all the details look at the entire story not just one particular piece of information so the, the next one i want to look at and i think i might just end on this one so we can get to the bigger horizon of this because i just wanted to illustrate this i'm gonna skip down a couple this one again was just i can't find it but it was related to this idea that comparing other states countries that didn't do similar measures right that they had there's no difference between those who did lockdowns and they use sweden once again as being no different than any other place that actually did lockdowns uh, i'm 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 literally mind boggled by this, Stephen. And I don't know if you can help me have empathy or understand, because I just do my basic look at um, those, the, those sites. Like, I don't know what, which one you gave me, but it's it's everywhere. I don't know if it's the some metric, but I look at it and it's totally different. And I think it does put in consideration the population uh, 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 growth. So it's you don't have to scale for that. Stephen, can you talk a little bit about where is this coming from, that there's no difference between those on lockdown and those who have done no luck. Yeah, I mean, it's so there are a couple of things. So on the one hand, you know, Sweden has really been held up as this example of a country that didn't do a lockdown. But, you know, implicitly, they, like, as Mark was saying before, that that glosses over a lot of individual behavior. And sure. and there's been a, a lot of work coming out that's suggesting that the fact that they didn't go on a lockdown didn't necessarily save their economy, that a lot of businesses are still really suffering and closing up because people aren't going out that much there. And that a lot of these things are sort of out of hand, out of the hands of the government. It's, it's people making decisions as to like what's safe and not to do out, you know, out in the community. And as far as I can tell, you're right. I mean, the epidemic is progressing more quickly in Sweden than in its other Scandinavian neighbors. And, you know, that's that seems to be the way that it's going. And they haven't been totally overrun the way that Italy has. And I think there are some questions as to why. Uh, and, and when I say Italy, it's also been a very regional issue in Italy as well. It's not the entire country, right? It's, it's been particular places. And and that's one of the big questions. There's just this this nice write-up in the New York Times sort of synthesizing these questions. that And the, this sort of falls under some of the unknowns among epidemiologists is why have some places been completely walloped by this thing and some places just don't really seem to be you know affected that much and you know you can make an argument about the age distribution but then japan is the oldest country in the world on average and they really haven't seen anything that bad but you know maybe it could be you know who knows what population density whatever and probably all of these things are conspiring along with a healthy dose of just it just hasn't reached some places yet and you know like i said we, we may well still be on the second inning i think there's a real difficulty in like recognizing the fact that this is still an unfolding situation. And so we're, we're tempted to draw conclusions from the paucity of evidence that we have right now. And, and we can hold up, you know, examples, again, this anecdotal evidence of one country versus another and trying to sure. compare these things. But, but there's no, as far as I'm aware, there's no sort of statistical analysis of various countries and their various responses that, that says anything about whether certainly, certainly nothing to support that not going on lockdown is helpful. There's plenty of you know, epidemiological evidence that shows that physical distancing measures help to slow the spread of infection for sure. That's, that's been pretty well established, but again, it's, it's not the only thing it, it doesn't, it, physical distancing doesn't guarantee that you won't have an outbreak, nor does not physical distancing guarantee that you will. And we want to w work in a world of guarantees and it's just not the world we've ever lived in. That's good. It's okay. So this, I want to now segue into this next part, but this is, I think what you just said, number one, Stephen, this sounds really cheesy, but you almost made teary-eyed by talking about the complexity of this because, I mean, you just, you realize like, okay, 
you have you have Sweden, you have Japan, which I had no idea, one of the oldest countries in the world. But you know, at least from our one or earlier episodes, we kind of mentioned, at least glossed over the fact they're also a little bit more emphasizing hygiene, right? Other mm-hmm. other cultures, and I don't want to say America is a dirty country because it sounds really kind of bad to say that way. But we 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 you know we hug, we 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 shake hands, we do a lot of more of those kind of things, and uh, so hygiene isn't necessarily at the top of our priority as much. Uh, you know, I remember again, my wife wanting to wanted me to wear masks even a year ago. And just felt like absolutely repulsed to do it because I felt like I was a slap in the face of everyone that I saw. I felt guilty, like I was treating everyone like a bad person. Like I think they're, you know, because that's just I think the culture we live in that that doing that is is saying to the other person you're a disease, right? Uh, and so it made me really hesitant to do this. But now I think, hey, good. now I have the open door. I mean, I can now it's like courtesy. <laughs> if you don't, right. it's it's a slap in the face. So you can see how our culture has already radically shifted for the most part. So. You know, I want to now transition to this. I want to get into the bigger picture of this. I want to riff with you guys for a little bit, like, what's really going on? Because, I mean, in my mind, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot over these 22 episodes. I've learned now that, like, do your best to go to the professionals in this area, right? So if you have a question about the the transmission of of, of viruses, of these kinds of things, you go to an epidemiologist. So you want to knock, if you want to talk and, and consult them. And when the epidemiologist begins to talk about the, the vaccines and the future of uh, immunity, you cross reference them, cross reference them with professional Im- immunologists, right? Uh, so you, you're constantly going through this phase of you finding professionals in this area and allow them to speak, not not a nutritionist over epidemiology, right? Or if you do, that's fine. Then you've got to find your network of epidemiologists to cross-reference from to make sure it actually holds clout, right? So I've learned a lot to be much more cautious of, of what information someone's given to me and what they're credible and what what I need to cross-reference from other people. So I want to get to this bigger picture of like what's really going on, you guys. Like, I mean, it's, it's a mess. I feel like I feel like data is accessible, but that's because I'm with you guys twice a week. So I think that I not everyone's like this. I you know I was looking at uh, the examples of it was New Zealand and South Korea, and I want I want to make this as kind of our way to discuss were they two radically different approaches, both really kind of squelched in some sense uh, the pandemic. One South Korea did not do a lockdown like we like we have done one, but they also were really prepared, right? They 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 learned as Stephen told me about way back weeks ago, learned from SARS that kind of stuff, and whatever it was, was it MERS, SARS? I'm not sure which one it was, but they learned from it and they started storing things up. They were prepared, and that helped them to navigate the terrain. Well, then you have New Zealand who didn't have those resources, and they went on lockdown immediately, really early, and they've had really good success. Two different means. And I noticed each article mentioned one thing in common. Both said, and there were totally different publications, that they believed that the one of the big reasons was they trusted their their leaders, they trusted the government. That helped them to be able to, to navigate this difficult terrain. I clearly don't sense that, a sense of trust. And I think this is where we can begin to riff. Like, where do you feel this is coming from, you guys? I mean, this is like becoming so toxic and for me, totally removed from reality. But I also want to have sympathy and try to understand the position, knowing that we're, we're all trying to do the same thing, is come out of this in a way that we can have a sense of freedom and have our relationships back. So, uh, Mark, do you want to chime in first and just tell me, like, where do you, where do you, where do you feel what's going on in this situation? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, as, as I love that you do, you've um, asked a tremendously complex question or set of questions, right? Um, sure. in, and I think um, one of the things that I want to highlight before we go too deep into this is um, I do agree with you. I think that that having access to good information and access to experts and that sort of thing is important, but it's, it's in some ways it's not quite enough. 
Um, and I think, and I think that one of the things that you've demonstrated kind of in our, in our conversations and as we're, you know, is, is that there, there is knowledge, right? There's facts, um, but there's also the intellectual virtues, if I sure. would dare to go that far to say things like intellectual humility, um, a certain type of skepticism, right? Um, and, and ability to integrate new information into one's frame and that those are things that are they're related to knowledge you know they're related to facts um, but they're also related to the way that you think and that it's it's not enough just to be washed over we 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 have every fact you know and and misfact at our disposal at any time it's not a volume of information issue and i think in a lot of ways it's not even an accessibility issue uh, but there's a tremendous issue in the way in and how we think about things and i don't i'm not putting myself or us in our podcast up as kind of paragons of of intellectual sure. virtue um, i think that's something that we're all in process towards but even just identifying it as something that one hopes for for oneself that like maybe at the end of 2020 i'm gonna have greater intellectual uh humility uh mm -hmm. than i did at the beginning you know or like a greater sense of the ways you know that these different knowledge we talked about different knowledges right this like narrative anecdotal knowledge and the way and you know that like i i want to understand that in a deeper and more robust way in a more precise way be precise about my language like those are things that are really really good and you're also appealing i think so that's that's you know reaction number one um another facet of what i think you were saying that i'm that i'm hearing is um you're invoking words that have a tremendous valence to them right so the headline of this article is the truth and lies right it's not the truth and mistakes it's the truth and lies right there's an intentionality to a lie an intentionality to deceive um, and for some purpose that's not stated. Uh, similarly, you said the word trust. Uh, trust is not particularly a scientific idea. You know, I can get to a place of trust by having evidence in my past that leads me there. But there are instances in which I trust people that I don't have evidence, you know, personal anecdotal evidence that I should trust them, um, you know, and, and vice versa, that, that, that exists in a realm that's, that's adjacent to, you know, that, that mi mixes with and touches these pure facts or this knowledge, but it, it also is in the moral universe. It's in, you know, the universe of like, um, uh, of our, our character, our sense of community, our sense of the common good, our sense of trust, you know, in other people that we're all pursuing the good. And those, those are hugely, you know, I think that the answer to that is not simply having more scientific information available, um, but it's something deeper. You know, I think there's, there's something deeper going on here. And that's one of the things that's worth talking about. I don't know. Any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think that navigating this space is, it can just be really, really difficult. And I, I do, I do sympathize for, with the, to some extent with, with, with the lack of trust that, that can exist for sure too. I mean, I think that there's even among scientists, I mean, I, I even become frustrated to the extent to which many of my colleagues even will sort of take on an, an air of just like, well, you should trust me. I know about this. There's, there's almost this like paternalistic attitude. And, and, and I think that that, that, that attitude can actually be especially strong in public health because in many cases, sort of the optimal thing that you can do is, you know, the optimal in, in the very narrow sight of, of, you know, of public health of just trying to keep the maximum number, this sort of utilitarian calculus that we're sort of always asked to 
do within public health, the greatest good for the greatest number in some sense, that, that oftentimes that leads you to these sort of paternalistic answers where you just sort of say, well, we'll just take away everyone's freedom. We'll tell them to do this thing, you know, and then that's sort of the optimal way. And then if you deviate from that at all, it's because, you know, you didn't trust us that, you know, and, and there's, you know, and, and I don't think that that's often an explicit message that comes from experts and scientists, but I do think that there is sort of this implicit undercurrent and that there can be sort of this sense of, um, you know, well, like, why, why don't you just listen to us? You should take me on my word. Why do I have to justify what I'm saying? Well, we are scientists, so we ought to be justifying everything that we're saying. Um, and so, uh, so I think that there's, there's a real difficulty here too, because I, I don't think that it's all entirely one-sided. I think that, that the relationship is fraught and it's something that sort of, we all, you know, recognizing that there, there isn't this great chasm between scientists and doctors and this normal citizen, right? Like I consider myself a normal citizen too, right? You know, and I just happen to have thought about infection diseases for a very long time, you know, and I, my desires and my hopes and my skepticism and all of that is all sort of, you know, uh, related to that of everyone around me. I don't, I don't see this big difference between me as like an expert in something. It doesn't, the word doesn't even really make much sense to me, but so I think that there's, there's this sense of, of separation that works its way in and that is almost uh, perpetuated on, on all sides in some sense. And, and that, that leads to this erosion of trust, I think. And, and I don't know how to address it, but it's something that I see for sure. You know, there's, it's, you mentioned that, and that's something I've seen particular, like specifically called out by certain critics of the social or physical distancing measures that we've done and stuff is that, well, we're listening to these modelers and these epidemiologists and all they care about is reducing the infection rate. But what about all these other things that are of value that we're losing in this time, right? And it, and they, the argument is, well, they don't take any of that into account. Now, I think we're on, that's, so we're on important ground. This is like that to me and that sort of contrarian stance, I have a certain amount of sympathy for because immediately what I'm hearing is I am ideally, you know, generously, I'm ready to embark upon a conversation about values and a conversation about the common good. And I have an opinion about the common good that may be different from yours. Um, and I think we should come to a place of like, how do we, how do we talk across the divide a little bit and have a conversation about the common good, you know? And unfortunately what I see is the immediate next step, or it almost seems to be like in the same motion as putting forward this conversation about what is the good, right? Is a, an assumption that the other person not only wills a different good, but actually wills the bad, right? That, that the problem is not that we have different rival conceptions of the good. The problem is that these conceptions are irreconcilable and antagonistic towards one another. And one will bring, you know, fl flames and, and apocalypse. And like, it, it's like, it's a big, and that's where there's like this huge emotional valence to that difference. And we're out of, we're out, we've been out for a long time of a place in which sort of a civil discourse about common goods um, happens in, in any kind of meaningful way it feels like and instead what we see are these kind of sallies from both sides you know it's like oh you know you're stupid and un uneducated you know or oh you're not you know not taking into account you know these important economic realities and like the truth that i see of my neighbors in front of me and like these volleys go back and forth and back and forth and that's uh, you know and it's tough it's it, you know as, as somebody who's kind of in the scientific community and sees sees um 
ways that medicine, you know, and in institutional medicine can fail people and can fail communities. I think that, it, that, that, that understanding and listening and not smugness, uh, you know, and not kind of that paternalistic view, um, is really needed, you know, in times when people are, are feeling, you know, this way. I often think, I mean, I think a lot of times that these statements, st- absolute statements or statements about, or, the, or kind of that emotional, frust- you know, the, the frustration that we feel and react to with a lot of these things, I think just often has to come from a certain wound somewhere, right? That it's like that there, there are real, real harms that people experience in their lives, and, you know, and, and that, that, that is motivating, you know, a lot of kind of the emotional intensity around these issues, probably on both sides. Um, and, you know, I just, I wonder, I wish that there was a way to kind of engage on that level first and kind of come to, come to this place where we're like seeing, seeing each other and, and seeing each other's kind of woundedness and where this is coming from and like, and that, where that anger and where that frustration and this feeling of being lied to, you know, because there's probably yeah. something real there, you know? And then, then moving on and saying, okay, how do we establish a common good? And how do we, how do we kind of, and even recognizing like our common goods may never be totally reconcilable. Um, and yet, like, how do we still live in community, you know, kind of this messy way? It just feels like we're, I don't know, it's so hard. It's so tough. Yeah. I, you know, you said a lot here that I've been trying to mull over both of you. And I, I think of it as, and I don't want to sit here and try to pontificate right now and say like somehow what I'm doing what I'm experiencing, what this episode is the authority. And this is the absolute correct way by which things are happening. But you know, it goes back to, I say this so many times and I, I'm, I'm falling more and more in love with this principle, that whole Oz principle and, and the culture pyramid. And it starts with experience and that uh, oftentimes we have experiences. So, you know, I think of, you know, I'm seeing a lot of things on my Facebook posts of trying to make this being some large one world organization of uh, promulgating conspiracy for communism and one world government and socialist paradigm. And some, you know, and, and what, whatever it is. Right. So, I'm like, what's, what's, what's my, what's the experience going on? I think I'm like, I'm trying to get the benefit of the doubt of like, well, we're coming out of an era by which um, there's been maybe a push for larger government and all these things. So there's, there's already a story that predates COVID. Uh, And now we're seeing this kind of surge, this in some sense is one world surge coming together to fight um, a disease that we're not fully aware of what, what, what its full impact will be in the coming years. Uh, and so then that becomes part of that that sub narrative that 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 rises to the top and pro- professes this this kind of conclusion, right? They had this experience in the past of governments taking more control than what they should have, which I get it has happened in history. Um, and then a suspicion, a right suspicion based off distrust that did they have the best interest in mind, which you talked about, Mark, this idea that, we're all in this together. We're all having different experiences. We're all having this sense of like uh, an idea of value. You know, I want to throw it to you, Stephen, as well. This, this, this idea that okay, uh, the epidemiologists of the world are simply uh, looking after one thing, and that is uh, the destroying the spread of the virus. And you, Stephen, will do this at all costs. Like that's that's your number one priority. And and Mark, you said it so poetically that like if he succeeds, you're an utter failure, Stephen. And if you fail, you just fail. So you you really picked a profession. That really has no, like literally, it's it's for the strong-willed and heart to be able to endure a lifelong, like literally showing that your job is to be wrong at all times for all reasons and for all people, and I and so here you are on this crusade to like stop this virus, um, and you mentioned to me a couple of weeks ago, you know, 
I'm, I'm, I'm nearly certain that's not the only thing you're considering. You were mentioning you were, you were working across departments with economists. And can you, I mean, do you talk to other people, Stephen, or do you actually just, just speak to your epidemiologist? <laughs> no, you two are my only friends, friends, man. Come on. It's, it's a theme of the episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and I think that's, that's part of it. And, and I see that as, you know, both, both my scientific responsibility, but also, also that's my personal responsibility. You know, that's me trying to do these same sorts of things with the resources that we have available. You know, we're, we're trying to understand this thing from, from all the perspectives that we're able to. And, and I just really have this real curiosity because I, I think that, you know, the, the more, the more I understand, the more equipped I'll be to respond and help the people in my life through this and, and hopefully, you know, help the rest of the world through it in some way too. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that it's, we're all, we're all inevitably looking at the world through, through the perspective that we have, through the lens that we have. And it's, it's, I think it's really the story of the story of human life to try to expand that, you know, to chip away at the edges of that little by little by talking with people really, really by community and by, and by going into community with the, with the presumption that the person that you're engaging in dialogue with has the best of intentions. I think that that starting off with that foot is, is absolutely crucial because it, then, you know, that's, that, that leads to the sort of openness that, that can transform your own worldview rather than trying to necessarily just win over another person. That kind of goes into what we were talking off the air again that I wanted to mention. And I read this book a long time ago and it was a, probably one of the most influential books I've ever read called Love and Responsibility. And I read it again because I'm teaching this class to a bunch of people. And there was one part of this, this book that came, I think it came over twice or three times this book. And it really pursued this idea of a calling for a greater sense of tenderness. And for a man, I feel like it's easy going to look over this and gloss over like, oh, tenderness, it's a girly thing. You know, that's, it's, it's like, oh, we're talking about weak sauce stuff. But really this individual, this guy who wrote this um, was really calling forward, particularly men, to pick up the mantle of tenderness. And he kind of, he kind of defined it as this. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of like empathy. And I've realized it hit me hard, guys. Like when I read this, I'm like, this is my greatest sucking point. Like I really realized this is my greatest opportunity. This is what vexes me, what destroys my relationships is my lack of tenderness. And he would say that you, and you oftentimes you learn it from, <laughs> the man learns it from the girl because <laughs> they oftentimes have it nailed. Uh, and men don't. And it's the idea of making the other person's world your own, right? It's making the other person's world, but not just like what he called like uh, uh, like fr- like frivial tenderness. We're like, oh, you know, it's okay, honey, or it's okay, it'll be fine, it's fine, let's go out and do something, right? It's like just, just placating, right, the issues before you, but actually allowing that issue to, to enter into your own world to, you, to the point where you feel like you're one with them in the, in the same emotion, and we lack that as a culture. I lack as an individual. And, and, and I think oftentimes because it's a very kind of paternal culture, kind of a masculine culture. And so we've lost this ability to be tender. And I'm seeing this like, and I think one of my things at livingthereal.com, what I talk about is the idea that I think one of the things that, that, that goes with this is that we have to move from a sense of determination to discovery. That when we live life of determination, the stronger we determine the world before us, like this is how it is. This is definitive how it is. We need to take a step back, right? And, and be more discovery oriented, whether it's discovering the person before us, which is like, I determine who Mark is. I pigeonhole them. I determine what it is. And then now I don't give that person credibility. You know, um, you know, Steven, you're just an epidemiologist. I know you, I know what you're going for. And so I'm not going to listen to you versus discovery. What is it that you're actually looking for? And, oh, you actually have concerns too, that are greater than just the virus itself. Like oh, you're, you have a holistic approach that this is probably the biggest thing that we need to get. But it actually, I don't think it, it helps much. I want to throw it back to you guys. When I'm seeing things that 
confirm this determinist mentality, right? So I just saw this image from India of this guy, this police beating this man with a stick, police officer, because he wasn't social distancing enough. So now that 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 was pulled, and that was the sense of uh, uh, trying to show that social distancing is is crap, right? That it's actually it's it's, it's policing. Uh, so that doesn't help. And then we saw early the Beach Post, which I've seen got, gone viral, where I think some newspaper used an L.A. Times beach to, to show that, hey, people are, are flooding the beach. And so now this is building a case where like, oh, see, they're fabricating stuff. I told you. I told you this isn't real. And then you have YouTube. You know, we talked about those ER doctors with those huge, gigantic muscles that are the size of our waist. <laughs> and, 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 and so we talked about them. And, and Google pulled the YouTube video. Right. So. Uh, Mark, you know, I want to throw it back to you for a second. You mentioned this often, this idea of like censorship and then obviously guarding truth as well. Can you, I mean, how do we deal with this? Yeah. I mean, I think this, it's just, it's, it's super tough. This is, you know, of course, way outside of my, my areas of, of expertise. Um, I think it's, you know, as, as we had talked about a little bit beforehand, that there's, there is sort of a responsibility on some level for someone to make sure that the, that, um, you know, frank inaccuracies don't get propagated because that can be really dangerous but at the same time anytime that the censorship is going on and like who's doing the censorship and it also adds fuel to the fire right like see it is you know it is a conspiracy and google's in on it they're taking down the you know and and it's i don't know i, I don't know what the right answer is um you know i don't think that the right answer is like that we need to silence all the dissent like that yeah. dissenting voices that seems you know frankly very clearly to not be the right answer um, but how do we uh, create a sense of kind of an you know we need good information from the right sources, but then who's the gate holder so that that's all that gets really tricky and and that's something you know to be honest with you I don't I don't know I don't have a clue of the, of the right thing there you know I think that going back a little bit and kind of this idea of, of tenderness or of of gentleness you know in this way that that um, that too can be sort of a type of strength, right? Um, that, 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 or in some ways there's this phrase that I like, and I don't know where it's from exactly, but this idea that, that gentleness is the perfection of strength. Um, and it's something that I just kind of keep, keep coming back to in different facets of my life in different areas. Um, and I think about it sometimes in like, in my hopes for my son, you know, and for, and for my daughters really and everybody, you know, I don't think it's a, it's a gendered thing at all. I think that it's just this way that we, that, um, you know, kind of this expression of, of strength and, and of course, you know, going back that that's where the word virtue comes from, right. This idea that it is a, a strength, a, a skill of character that gets worked out over time. And that the perfection of that is actually um, something that maybe from the outset with like a, a limited view of what tenderness might mean or what gentleness might mean, we think they're opposites, but actually they kind of converge in this interesting way. Um, and that you can only be really truly, you know, um, big enough to let somebody else's worldview in. Um, you know, if you, if you're strong to begin with and you know where you're coming from and you have those intellectual virtues and, and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, I, I, there's just a lot, I think, you know, in my life, I, I'm so in process with this stuff that it's not even funny, you know, like I just, I don't know. I wish that I knew, but my, my subjective experience, you know, of, of reading the news right now and, and seeing the ways that sort of our cultural pathology is just continuing, you know, on both sides, on every side, you know, not that there's even two sides, but just like in, in, within each of us, um, it's very hard. It's very sad to me. Um, and I, I think that hearing things like, you know, like you kind of that gloss on the idea of, of tenderness is, is like a, a small, but real 
hopeful point. And, you know, I think yeah. maybe that's what we, that's where we have to pin our hopes. I agree. I mean, I think if anything, if I come out of any of this, I mean, I, I hope, I hope that I can be a better individual. But I, like you said, there is humility that has increased in my life. Um, maybe some parties in my around me might disagree, but uh, I, I think, uh, I think I, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm, I, I, I'm, I have a greater awareness of it. Uh, docility has been a big part of just realizing that uh, the stronger I am on a, on an opinion, the weaker I am, as you mentioned, Mark, that I, I've just realized this. And I've realized all the times where I've exerted my strength. I mean, this, this is, has really caused me to think a lot about myself. Uh, where you know, the more I've exerted strength in my life, I realized the weaker I really have been. I was preserving myself. I was uh, uh, putting a Band-Aid uh, to cover over my, a, a desire for vulnerability. I remember the Navy SEALs. I, I read this in a book. Uh, you know, I don't know. It seemed to be, be a, a New York bestseller. So I think it's, it's about an ex-Navy SEAL, but just talking about the that they don't look for strength as being their number one criteria. I mean, they, don't, they want it. They want, they want strength. They want, they want perseverance, but they're looking for vulnerability because that's because in the end, they need, to, they need to be together as a team. And they need to learn from each other, and that's and they'll they'll definitely uh, make way and get rid of somebody who actually shows all the examples of strength, physical strength, but very little sense of vulnerability and trust. They'll they'll immediately get rid of them because it just it won't work. It won't work for a team. Uh, and that's and I think just ending on this that I think we need to strive for a sense of community and not sense of tribalism. I was talking off the air that tribalism. If you want to read a great book called The Second Mountain by David Sparks, um, sorry, sorry, did I say it? David Sparks? Is that correct? No, that's not right. I think you said it was David Brooks. Uh, is that right? David Brooks. Sorry, the journalist. I know. Right? A da- I know. Yeah. I, yeah, I know a David Sparks. So that's uh, so another another author. Hey, friend number David four. David Brooks. <laughs> they're totally. Yeah, they're totally different. Don't read David Sparks unless you're a tech geek. Um, but uh, but David Brooks, uh, the Second Mountain. Uh, he really kind of uh, started talking about this idea between isolation and community, and why we're so isolated. And he and he made the distinction between community and tribalism, and that the sense of tribalism is we're in this together against a foe. And this is like a, it's, it's really a sham sense of community. And I feel like we've, we've entered into this next phase of tribalism that we're in this together. And what it does is it compromises our ability to see the truth. And that the way we need to, do, to, to approach life is we need to approach the other through a lens of discovery and not determination, determinism. Uh, and, and through a genuine sense of inquiry and curiosity, which I'm trying to do. It's hard. I have a lot of emotions about this right now when I see it on Facebook. So it's calling me to, like, I remember, and also in the Oz Principle, it says the number one way to be successful is to always remember you are part of the problem. You are the problem. And if you can, if you can ingrain that in yourself, then you also are the solution. And so when I feel this in my heart, you guys, when I read this Facebook, and instead of just going to pointing fingers, to first ask, to first make the statement to myself, which is hard, guys, especially in certain circles, I'm the problem. I'm the problem, right? I take ownership of what I'm feeling. Uh, and then and then how can I be a solution, right? But how do I be a solution in the sense of humility and tenderness? If we all take a small part of this, I think we can make a big difference uh, in what's going on right now. Okay, we've been running long, 50 minutes. It's been a great time to chat with you guys. If you guys want more information, Stephen Kissler, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-S-S-L-E-R uh, on Twitter, me, M-A-T-T-B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R on Twitter as well. If you can make a small donation, we really want to keep this going. It's hard. Uh, requires a lot of resources. Uh, so please, uh, pa- uh, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast, or just check the show notes. One time, small uh, donation will be great. You'll have links there to Venmo and PayPal. Great. Uh, it's been awesome being with you three. I hope we all, you guys have, all the listeners have a great uh, week and we will see you guys in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye.